I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Professor of Asian Studies, Edward Slingerland, on his book, Trying Not to Try, The Ancient Art of Effortlessness and the Surprising Power of Spontaneity. Edward Slingerland is an internationally recognised expert in both early Chinese thought and the links between cognitive science and the humanities. He is Professor of Asian Studies, Associate Member in the Departments of Philosophy and Psychology, and holds the Canada Research Chair in Chinese Thought and Embodied Cognition at the University of British Columbia. Previously, he's the author of Effortless Action and What Science Offers the Humanities, and his latest book, which we're going to be talking about in this interview, is Trying Not to Try. So, Edward, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into the book, can we just talk briefly about yourself and your background? How does somebody from New Jersey, internationally recognised expert in both early Chinese thought and the link between cognitive science and the humanities, <laughs> it seems rather implausible. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I, I don't. I got into the Chinese philosophy as a teenager, actually reading this stuff in translation, and, and it just really appealed to me. I started out in the sciences actually in college, until I realized I actually wasn't very good at them. So um, at a certain point, I switched to Chinese and started studying Chinese language and Chinese philosophy, and it just really in my mind, made a lot more sense than some of the Western philosophers I'd studied earlier. So uh, that's one of the motivations. And then I also, as a once I became a professor and I was working on early Chinese thought, I began to see how some of these ideas connected with things that I knew were going on in psychology. And so a second, my second most recent part of my career has been getting more involved in cognitive science and how things we know about evolution and the way the mind works really have implications for studying philosophy and politics, economics, anything. So uh, this book in a way represents the putting together the earlier work I did on the early Chinese thinkers with this more recent work I've been doing with cognitive science, evolutionary theory, and how this all relates to uh, contemporary implications. So the book is about, it's specifically about two concepts, isn't it? Can you explain what those are? Yeah, so the first is wu-wei. It literally means no doing or non-doing. So it's sometimes translated as inaction or non-action, but I think that's too passive uh, translation. So I think something like effortless action is better. So it describes a state where you, it's a psychological state. It's a state where you're acting in the world, but you don't feel like you are. You lose a sense of yourself as an agent. You don't feel as if you're exerting any effort. Time goes very quickly, so you kind of lose a sense of time. And yet everything works out perfectly. So whatever you're doing, you do very skillfully. If you're in a social situation, everything goes well. Everyone likes you. Kind of, you, everyone emerges very satisfied with how things went. This is the state of way. It looks a little bit like when athletes talk about being in the zone, uh, or actors or uh, musicians talk about really being on. That's you get absorbed in the activity you're doing. That's that's way. So it's actually a very active state although it feels as if you're not doing very much. And then people, the early Chinese thinkers, believe that when you're in this state of wu-wei, you have this power that they, unfortunately in modern Mandarin, it's pronounced 
uh, <laughs> so it's like kind of awkward, but it's, uh, it's, I think the best translation is something like charismatic power. So it's when you're in Wei, you have this power that allows you, particularly in social situations, to command the respect of people. So if you're a Confucian, it's what allows people want to follow you spontaneously. You don't have to make them follow you. They just want to. If you're a Taoist, it's what allows you to kind of move effectively through the world and uh, not encounter opposition and 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 also re- relax people around you. So certain of the Taoist thinkers believe if you have the actually allows you to pass on your way in a certain manner. It's almost like it becomes contagious. So people around you actually relax and become more natural. And are those two things, I mean, do they have to be linked in Chinese thought? I mean, can a person be charismatic but not have the wei? And is that therefore somehow suspect if they are? Yeah, no, they're they're essentially linked. And the early Chinese have a theological story about this. So they think that when you're you're in the and this is these these uh, Taoist and Confucian thinkers. So it's actually the early Warring States period that I work on is very diverse. There are all sorts of thinkers running around. A lot of them didn't believe in this Wu Wei stuff at all. But for the people who did, the only way to rule effectively or be effective in life is to have Wu Wei and Du because they do essentially go together. And one way to look at it, the way they explain it, is that uh, if you're in way you're following heaven's will so heaven is the supreme being who kind of runs runs everything in the universe if you're following heaven's will heaven gives you this power as kind of a mark of a proof it's like a little star that heaven puts on your head and this person's doing my will follow what they want to do so that's why the two really go together and you can't have there's no way to get duh without being in the state of way Let's have a, a, an illustration all through this book and obviously all through the uh, Chinese philosophy books that this is based on. There's a great use of stories to illustrate this. So tell us the, the Butcher Ding story, which is one of the first ones you tell in the book. Yeah, people like that story. It's a, it's a great, it's one of the best illustrations of Wu Wei, I think. So this is a, uh, there's a butcher and you're supposed to be shocked by this story. So a story that opens with a butcher cutting up an ox and it falling into pieces on the ground. My students read this. Uh, Russell Brand, who was reading for my book on his podcast, was horrified. <laughs> there's this guy cutting up an animal that's supposed to be spiritual. It doesn't seem very spiritual to us. But that's the point in this text that Zhuangzi, Zhuangzi is actually trying to shock us. So we have this individual who's really the lowest of the low. His butchers were almost an untouchable class in early China, and yet he's acting in a beautiful way. He's cutting up the socks that falls to pieces on the ground. He's described as uh, moving as if he's dancing in harmony with ancient music, and people are amazed at his skill. And so the Lord, who is there witnessing this ceremony, says to him, you know, how do you do this? This is amazing. And, and how did you get such skill? And the butcher says, well, what I do is just follow the Tao. I don't, it's beyond skill. And then he kind of describes his psychological state. He says, you know, when I first started cutting up oxen, I really tried hard. I kind of looked and I tried to analyze what was going on. But he describes how after a while he gets into the state where he, he says he follows, he says, I follow my spiritual desires. So he doesn't feel as if he's doing the work. He feels like this kind of force inside him is guiding him along. And that way he moves his blade through the ox. He never touches bone or ligament or anything at all. He just moves in the spaces in between. And he says, I've, had, I've been using the same blade for 19 years and I've never had to sharpen it. So I never bump into anything. And at the end, the Lord says, I've heard from the the words of my butcher how to live my life, the secret to living my life. And so clearly this is a metaphor. The blade moving through the ox is really a metaphor for you moving through life. But the fact that it's this the kind of lowliest of the low illustrating this is also meant to kind of shock us out of our normal way of thinking about the world. You mentioned the idea of a sort of modern equivalent being in the zone, and people will be familiar with that, I think, that idea of sportsmen. But there's another modern equivalent, which is something called flow, which I don't think is is quite as familiar. Can we talk about what that is, and then we can talk about how the two are related? Yeah, so a lot of people who who hear about Wei say, oh, that sounds a bit like flow. So flow is this idea popularized in the kind of 70s and 80s. The early 90s was the big book that uh, psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi put out called Flow, uh, being in the optimal state. And he's describing a state that looks a lot like Wu Wei. So being, uh, losing a sense of time, being absorbed in activity, being very effective because of that. So it is, there are a lot of similarities between Flow and Wu Wei. And actually, it's, I found out about Flow because uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the person who coined this term, uh, his son went to school with me. <laughs> so we were in grad school together at Stanford, um, and his son was studying early Chinese philosophy. So 
he turned me on to Flo, and he actually told his father about these stories. So actually, in in Flo, they, he talks about the Butcher Ding story because he found out about this from from his son Mark. So Flo is related to Chinese philosophy. It's not just coincidental that these two things are are the same. It comes out of Chinese as well. It actually is coincidental. I mean, he formulated this idea long before. Uh, his son started grad school, I think. So I think that he had been developing this idea for decades. And I think it was really just uh, noticing that, hey, there are these parallels in early Chinese thought. So it really came out of his work in positive psychology and social psychology. So it was developed independently. But the fact that it looks so much like Wu Wei, I think, is revealing. They're both picking out a very important psychological state that human beings can get into. And what the outcome have been the same. I mean, the the uses that the Chinese philosophers would have talked about living your life through the principles of Wu Wei. I mean, is that is Flo aiming for the same sort of outcome? Kind of. <laughs> so in some situations, so really, um, I think the best way to get a sense of the difference is, so Csikszentmihalyi has this problem that he has to solve, which is one you need to solve, which is he wants to distinguish flow from states that might look kind of like flow, but we don't want to call flow. So for instance, if you are vegging out in front of the TV, eating Doritos and drinking a beer, you lose a sense of time passing, you lose a sense of yourself as an agent. So there's some of the hallmarks of flow, but you emerge feeling dirty and kind of enervated and not energized and you're not particularly effective. So we don't want to call that flow. So he's trying to figure out, well, what's the difference? So how do you, you know, what are the hallmarks of flow? And he ends up deciding it's got to be complexity and challenge. So he thinks flow happens when your skills, the skills you've developed are perfectly attuned to the task you're doing. So if it's too easy, you get bored. If it's too hard, you get frustrated. But flow is when you're just, you get absorbed because you're in this flow channel of uh, skill meeting, meeting challenge. But what that means is you've got to be constantly ramping up the challenge because your skill gets better as you do something more and more. And this fits certain situations. So it fits um, his example. He uses things like rock climbing. You always need a harder rock face to climb as you get better. He uses in kind of the business world, he talks about one exemplar of flow who is always looking for kind of a more complex business deal to close because she's getting better and better at doing this. So it works for some situations. And, and that looks like some of the skill stories in the in like the Zhuangzi, so the story of Butcher Ding. But the problem is a lot of, as he looked at flow more and as he, he and his colleagues actually did some survey data and talked to people about what gets them into flow, when do they experience it. Most of these situations actually don't involve complexity and challenge. So a lot of people report, most people report getting into flow in situations like eating dinner with their family or playing with little children or being out in nature, walking around in a landscape they really love. And there's nothing complex or challenging about this. It's, um, and most of what the sort of phrases people use, they talk about being absorbed or kind of being, you know, being at one with something. And so this is where I think Uwe is a more helpful term in the sense that it encompasses all the stuff flow would, so rock climber or someone looking for a new challenge, but also what most people experience, which is this, the sense of being absorbed into something bigger than themselves. So for in Uwe, the defining feature of Uwe is being absorbed into something that's both bigger than yourself, and that's, as we'd say in philosophy, normatively positive. So it's something you value that you think is good. And that then captures a lot of these, most of the experiences people have, where it's really about being absorbed into something that you care about. I'm Travis Elbra. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. A bit more about how it how it worked in a modern context then. Let's talk about you. In the book, you detail how you yourself apply the techniques of Wu Wei into your, into your own life. So perhaps tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's, I think in some ways it's trickier for modern people to get into Wu Wei in the sense that in most traditional societies, there's a clear, you got a clear story about what the bigger framework is that you'd want to get absorbed in. You also have a lot more of mandated group activities, so ritual behaviors that you do regularly, you can kind of get into this Wu Wei and these, these ceremonies. I think for modern individuals who aren't don't have a traditional religious framework, you've really got this issue of what gets you into Wu Wei and how do you create how do you set up your life in a way that you can kind of be in a way more often than not? And what people, most people end up doing is kind of cobbling something together. So for instance, I don't have really any kind of coherent framework of meaning in the sense that I don't embrace some kind of big story about what the universe is and um, how we're supposed to live in, in it. And so as a result, I tend to get into Wu Wei in a big variety of situations, uh, kayaking, 
writing, if the writing is going well, hanging out with family and friends, cooking. I think most people tend to find there are certain landscapes that reliably get me into Uwe, so certain places I really like to hike or just being out in these places gets me into a state of Uwe. But there's no real coherent story I could tell about how all these things fit together. It's just something, it's almost kind of trial and error how you find out what gets you into this state. There's a paradox, obviously, at the heart of this idea trying not to try the book is called how do we try not to try how does that paradox work there's a great illustration of this in the book about a game at a local museum called um, Mindball. tell us that because i think that really sums up the paradox yeah so Mindball is the perfect microcosm of this problem of trying not to try so this is a game that you're, you have two players sitting at opposite ends of a table the goal is to push this little metal ball to the other side of the table, and you do it with your mind. <laughs> That's why it's called mind ball. So you're, both players are sitting with their heads against an EEG sensor, and the sensor is picking up alpha and theta waves. So this is the signal your brain kicks off when it's relaxed. And the more alpha and theta waves you produce, the more force you exert on the ball. So the way you win mind ball is by out-relaxing your opponent. <laughs> you win by not trying to win. If you're trying to win, you're going to lose. Um, so it's, you see people just struggle. I, I struggled with it. I'd never played mind ball before. I finally got to sit down with the uh, person who ran the exhibit, and, and she crushed me <laughs> the first couple of games. And it's because I, you know, the, it was very revealing. The first game I sat down, I was like, hey, I study way I should be good at this. Um, and I was doing all right until I opened my eyes, and I saw the ball had rolled maybe three quarters of the way down to her end of the table. So I was almost about to win. I opened my eyes and saw that, and I thought, oh, I'm winning. And as soon as I thought that, the ball stopped and started rolling back toward me. <laughs> and the, you have those metal balls rolling towards you, and you start to panic. And you're like, oh, i got to relax, got to relax, stop thinking about it. And the more you do that, the worse it gets. And that's the ball just came spinning all the way back down to my end of the table, and I lost. So this, what I like about this game is it captures this feature of our psychology that you can't consciously force yourself to stop trying. You can't use your conscious brain to shut down your conscious brain. So that's really at the heart of it, the paradox of trying not to try. I want to get us on to talk about the cognitive neuroscience of Uwe. But before we do that, I mean, much later in the interview, I want to talk about how these concepts sort of help all of civilization get started in the first place. But before we get on to that, can we talk here about how things were different in the West? How our, our ideas, sort of like Descartes and there's the idea of, you know, the dualism of mind and body, how, how ideas differed in Western philosophy? Yeah, so in Western philosophy the last few hundred years, which is recent for me because I study ancient China, but it's uh, it's been around for a while in the West, have really been dominated by these disembodied models of both the way we think and of ethics, how you'd go about figuring out what the right thing to do is and doing it. So you see this in Descartes, Kant, these models where we thinking is portrayed as this abstract thing done by the mind that really has nothing to do with the body in any any significant way. Um, your mind could kind of be anywhere. It's plat you know, using computer language. It's platform independent. It's how thinking works. The problem with that is it, it doesn't seem to be very accurate. So one of the things we're just coming out of cognitive science is that our thinking is embodied. So we think in images, first of all. So most of our concepts are actually structured by our experience with the physical world, our body interacting with the physical world. So we think in terms of metaphors and analogies and images. We're not thinking in terms of abstract concepts. It's also clear that rationality is very dependent on emotions. So again, Western philosophy tends to have a very sharp distinction between reason and emotion. You have to use your reason to control your emotion. What's becoming more clear is that reason can't function without emotions. They're tied together in a very important way. So the early Confucian and Taoist models, what I find helpful about them from a contemporary psychological perspective, is they're very much embodied. This idea of wu-wei is about embodied perfection. So you can think about, if you want to think about the perfect individual in Western philosophy as someone who can think perfectly rationally and has really good willpower and can kind of impose whatever decision you make rationally on the, on the self. So I should do X and I'm going to force myself to do in the embodied model, perfection is about cultivating these embodied habits, skills, a kind of know-how, if you want to think about it. So tacit kind of knowing how as opposed to having abstract knowledge about the world. And so the perfect person is somebody who has perfectly trained their dispositions so they can do the right thing or act appropriately in any situation without having to think about it consciously because they've trained their body in the right way. And this just from a contemporary perspective looks much more uh, reasonable in terms of a, both a description of how you 
you would educate people or train people, and also as a description of what's going on in people when they're when they're acting in the world. So I think you know people say, well, why do you go back to the early Chinese material? And it's partly because they had a much more psychologically realistic model of how human beings work, how we think, and how we behave. Nowadays, we talk about you know, this idea of system, system one and system two of the mind, sort of hot and cold. So how is that related to Uwei? Well, the, putting it in terms of hot and cold, it would Western philosophy, recent Western philosophy is all about system two, so the cold, rational, conscious system. And system one, the hot system, is seen as a barrier. You know, it's just something you have to control. So Plato's image of you know the mind is the charioteer, and then the so system two is the charioteer, and system one are these wild horses you have to control. In the embodied model, system one and two are always interacting with each other, and the key to success is actually taming system one. And so you're using your conscious mind, you're actually retraining your hot cognition in various ways, but the key is actually to get the hot cognition functioning the right way. And again, from a modern perspective, it's clear that system two is very important. We wouldn't have evolved it if it wasn't doing some important work for us. But in everyday life, there's no way we could be relying on system two all the time. It's slow, it's very uh, expensive energetically, so if you exert conscious control, cognitive control, you get very tired quickly and then you can't do it in the next moment. So there's no way that human beings are walking around using system two constantly to guide their behavior. The way we really move through the world is through these hot systems, uh, tacit embodied knowledge. And so the key is figuring out a, a way to reshape that hot cognition so it's actually leading us to do the kind of things we want to do. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and this week I'm talking to Edward Slingerland, and we're talking about his book, Trying Not to Try. And Edward, in this part, as I mentioned, I want to talk about some of the key thinkers. But before we do, let's talk about the historical context. You've already mentioned that this thinking is taking place in a period of Chinese history called the Warring States period. So tell us about that, when it was, why it was called that. Yeah, so this is roughly uh, 5th to 3rd century BCE. So this is a period when the Zhou dynasty, one of the the most important early dynasties in China, has basically disintegrated. So the Zhou king no longer really has any power. And China has been carved up into lots of these little states that are all fighting with one another for supremacy. So it's a very chaotic and probably horrible time to live. (laughs) It wasn't very pleasant living there. From a philosophical perspective, though, the exciting thing about it is it was very innovative. So you've got all these states, they're all trying to gain an upper hand, and they're open to suggestions. So there's actually a lot of these books that we have now from this period were the products of philosophers along with their disciples, kind of groups of thinkers moving from state to state and trying to sell their ideas to various rulers. So it's a time of really intense philosophical innovation and all of it happening with an eye toward practical implications because we don't have time for, you know, kind of blue sky thinking about philosophy. We need to actually solve some real problems. So that's what I I find so exciting about this period. And while that's, I mean, you just suggested that the conditions enabled them to do the philosophizing. To what extent is those conditions also affecting the ideas? Is there something about that period? Yeah, and certainly in some cases. So one of the most prominent of these schools is this this early primitivist school, the Taoists. We call them in retrospect now the Taoists, but they weren't. They didn't call themselves that. But this text that a lot of people know in the West, the Tao Te Ching or the Lao Tzu, was a product of people who essentially are looking at this chaotic state of affairs and saying, "We really messed up with this whole civilization idea. We really shouldn't. The civilization actually is not so good." And so they they really think that the only answer to this chaos is essentially 
uh, primitivist anarchy. So we need to go back to living in small-scale villages. We need to get rid of market economies. We get we need to get rid of centralized states. And and I think if you can do that, warfare and suffering and all these other things will disappear if people can just go back in a, a natural lifestyle. One of the other Taoist thinkers, Zhuangzi, is really a kind of uh, he's not he doesn't want to change the way we live. He doesn't have any big visions for changing society, but he's giving you advice as an individual of how to move through a chaotic world effectively without harming yourself. So in a way, it's kind of a way that how you as an individual can survive this chaos. So there's definite ways in which you see the, the political and social chaos of the time affecting these thinkers' ideas about what the right way forward is. We'll come back to both of those thinkers' schools of thought in a moment, but let's talk about Confucius, who um, I think is a, is a good place to start. So, well, who was he? We're not entirely sure. He probably did exist. Um, he probably did live. So now he's being celebrated again in China. And he, he has been celebrated for a long time as a great thinker. There's a lot of this is happening later on. So at the time, he was essentially a kind of unemployed academic, if you want to think of it that way, uh, going around from state to state trying to get rulers to adopt his ideas. But for Confucius, the chaos of his time is a result of people having abandoned the culture of the Zhou dynasty. So he thinks that the social political chaos is a direct result of cultural chaos. And so the answer is to rediscover the culture of these Joe Kings and then internalize it, uh, make it part of our hot cognition, train ourselves in this culture. And if we can do this, we'll bring the whole world back into order. So he, his goal is really to kind of find someone. It seems to think it's, it can't be him. So he's fairly conservative. And he seems to think it's got to be kind of an existing ruler, one of these people who rules one of these warring states. But if he could get them to adopt the Confucian Way, train themselves in ritual, shape their thought through studying the odes, they will get into a state of wu-wei, and then through the power of their da, they'll be able to unify China again. He uses these metaphors like uh, being like the pole star, so they'll be like at the pole star at the center of the sky, and all the other stars will come uh, rotate around him, or he'll be like the wind blowing over the grass and be able to affect everyone, bring everyone into order. So his goal is to kind of get people to readopt this culture of the Zhou, and he thinks if he can do that, then he'll bring order to China. And there's volumes of his works, the Analects, but they presumably weren't put together by him. No, no. So this was, the Analects was put together after his death, probably. The, the earliest parts, I think, were put together by his direct disciples, but there's several different layers to the text. And then later thinkers in the warring states all claiming to be representing Confucius's ideas, who have very different ideas, in fact, about, about how we do self-cultivation. But the Confucians, so the school that he founded, when we talk about the Confucians, they're really, what distinguishes them is, if we want to put it in terms of wu-wei, they think you need to try not to try. So they recognize there's this paradox of how you can try not to try. Their solution is, well, you just got to train. And if you try for long enough, if you train and train and train, eventually the trying will fall away. You'll have developed these new habits. And then somehow they kind of kick in and start functioning in a natural way. There's a character that emerges from Confucius's world that, that seems so modern I wanted to talk about because it, it amused me. The village poser. Yeah, the village poser, yeah. So their worry, so this is the worry, is that it's not going to work. So you're going to train, it's basically the, this tension of, if you want to put it in moral terms, the tension of the paradox of Wu Wei is about how would you get someone to be virtuous if they're not already virtuous? So we have a feeling, we have a sense that someone who is generous, for instance, it's a character trait they have. They are, there's something inside of them that makes them generous. And the sign of that is that they do generous things without having to think about it. They don't think about who's watching. They don't worry about what the implications are. They just act in a generous way. What do you do with someone you want to make generous, but they're not already? How do you make them be spontaneously some completely new way? And again, the Confucians think you can do this through training. So we're going to train you. You're going to do rituals that kind of teach you behaviorally how to be generous. We're going to read stories about the ancient generous sage kings who did all these wonderful things. And then somehow you're going to internalize that and start to become really generous. The worry is that you actually just learn to fake generosity really well. So you learn to do all the right things and say all the right things but you don't really have the internal disposition that is really generosity inside of you. And we see that Confucius is worried about this. So he's very worried about these, what he calls the village poser, these people who can, you point to them and you can't really point out anything they're doing that's wrong. And yet they're somehow hollow. He calls them sometimes thief of virtue because they pretend to be virtuous and they're not. 
And the Taoists think that this is the inevitable outcome. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Come of Confucianism in general. <laughs> Anyone who's trying to be uh, virtuous is inevitably going to end up being a village honest person. So they think in that sense, trying is always going to lead to hypocrisy. Yeah, so Lao Shi, you've already mentioned, subtitled The Old Master. He's one of the founders of Taoism. And yeah, his idea is completely opposite. This idea of Confucius that the way to get civilization back is to study, is to learn the old ways and bring back the old rituals. He, he thinks that's entirely wrong. Yeah, I know. He says, you know, if you, uh, the more you talk about benevolence and generosity, the less benevolent and generous you are. As soon as people start talking about being a filial child, you better watch out because <laughs> they're not a filial child. So he really thinks that the problem is civilization itself and language itself. He thinks that really talking about virtue or trying to be virtuous is always going to destroy virtue. And so the only way to really be virtuous, you know, using Lao Tzu as a name, so he probably didn't exist. Uh, we, we attribute this text to him. It's probably the product of this community of people who were advocating primitivism, but uh, you know, it's easier just to say Lao Tzu. So the, the Lao Tzu position is that we need to forget language. We need to get. He actually thinks we need to get rid of literacy. At one point, he says we need to go back to using the knotted cord, which is a way to keep track of things when you don't have writing. So he seems to really want us to go back to a preliterate society, and he thinks if we can do that, we'll actually be in harmony with our natures again. So he thinks that one of the problems with there are many problems with civilization. It encourages moral hypocrisy. It also, on a more basic level, gives us all these artificial desires. So society teaches you you need all of these things that you don't really need, but it's insatiable. They keep, and one of the things I talk about is this looks plausible from a contemporary perspective in terms of consumerism and this idea of you know, constantly needing the latest iPhone and you think your car is nice enough, but then a new model comes out and you're like, oh, I need that model. Um, Lao Tzu calls this the desires of the eye. So there are desires created by you seeing flashy new things and then you decide you need them. And he thinks that that's where all the suffering and hypocrisy comes from. And if we can just shut that down, so we stop flashing shiny things in front of people, we stop giving them cultural norms they have to follow, we'll all kind of go back to living in these little villages and being content and embracing what he calls the desires of the belly, our, our real desires. We just need some simple food, a place to live, and, and then we'll be Uwe in a true sense. And of course, inevitably, one of the downsides of going back to a pre-literate society is all of these ideas are written down in his book. Yeah, <laughs> he's got to write. There's later a Chinese poet made fun of the Tao Te Ching. He said, Cause there's a, he who speaks does not know is a famous line from the text. And the poet says, well, you wrote a book of 5,000 words. So I guess you don't know what you're talking about. Um, this is the tension. And, and you really have to see, I think, Taoism, all the forms of Taoism as reactions. They're correctives. So this text is, if you can read the text, you're already messed up. 
you're already educated. You're already part of this messed up elite. So it's really a kind of corrective. And I think, so the way I think the authors of the Tao Te Ching would respond is that we'd prefer not to have to write that things are so messed up that we're going to do it. But it's kind of a message that destroys itself upon delivery. So you should follow these instructions and then destroy them um, and stop writing. Um, that's the idea, because we have to do something to break you out of this spiral that you're in. I want to get you to tell another story here, mainly just because it's it's so enjoyable, but it is about, well, shit, it does come out of his his philosophy. It's the story um, which involves Confucius, about the uh, the story of two men yoked to a plough. Yeah, yeah. So this is, so one of the ways I try to describe this primitivist community is that they're the first hippies. They really are people who have dropped, they're educated people who have, just as the hippies in the 60s tended to be educated you know, middle, upper middle class kids. Um, these are wealthy, educated people who've rejected society and dropped out. So yeah, there's this passage in the Analects where Confucius is, uh, this is the first hint we get of this primitivist community. He's traveling along and they see these guys pulling plows in the field themselves. So they're in the yoke pulling the plow. And this is just bizarre because China had oxen at the point. So people, no one would use, no one would pull their own plow. Um, so these guys are using self-consciously primitive technology. And they have these crazy names. Uh, one of them is called Standing Tall in the Mud. He doesn't have really a proper name. So they've also adopted these kind of, you know, they're basically calling themselves like Moonchild and <laughs> Star Walker, just like the, uh, the 60s hippies. And they're telling him, he sends his disciple over, and, and they tell his disciple, this is traveling around trying to get people to follow the way is never going to work because you're trying too hard. It's always going to result in hypocrisy. What you need to do is give up trying and embrace nature the way we do. And, of course, this is recorded in the Analects, so they don't win the argument. So they go back to the disciple reports their words, and Confucius says, has, has some kind of sniffy comment about, well, we can't band together with the beasts and birds. <laughs> this is my, I have to try to save China. And they're rebuked. But that's the Tao Te Ching, I think, is basically the first book we have where these people get to record their own teachings. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So those are the, really the two founding philosophers, but there's, let's talk about a couple of their disciples. First of all, there's a guy called Mencius. Mencius is, is a Latinized uh, version of his name, Mungs in, in Mandarin, Master Mung. So he's, it's, he's an interesting figure, and he's in some ways hard to characterize, because he's a Confucian. So he really thinks his job is defending Confucius's vision against the Taoists and other people. He's Moists, these utilitarians who are running around. But he ends up adopting some Taoist ideas. So one of the things he adopts is this idea that being natural is good. So Confucius thought being natural was crude and unshaped and we need to cultivate and carve and polish. Mencius says, no, no, we've got this nature inside of us. But the interesting move he makes is he says, it's good and it's there, but it's only in the form of sprouts. So he thinks we're born with these kind of moral sprouts. And the goal of self-cultivation is to help them grow. And it's a very, this agriculture metaphor does great work for Mencius because it captures both the idea that we want to work together with our nature we want to uh, be natural. We don't want to force things on our nature. But on the other hand, you need to do some work. So he's not talking about weeds. He's talking about plants, agricultural plants that you need to you need to water, you need to weed, you need to actually do some work. So he's come up with this metaphor that gets the idea across of we're going to try. We have to try to be Uwe, but we're going to do it in a fashion where we're respecting our natural tendencies and not trying to go against them and really just helping what's already inside of us to come out. So he's trying to argue that Confucian culture really is natural if you understand it properly and it requires some work but a special kind of non-coercive work. So he becomes a very important thinker in, in later Chinese thought. And, and actually, the Analects gets read through Mencius later on in Chinese history. And you've already mentioned Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi, yeah. And he's a Taoist, definitely, but a bit more nuanced. So how has is, how is he developed? Yeah, so we call him a Taoist. So the Confucians were self-identified. So Mencius would stand up and salute and say he was a Confucian. Uh, the Taoists wouldn't call themselves that. This is a later category we use. But it's a helpful category because they do have a lot of things in common. So Zhuangzi is similar to the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, 
in the sense that he thinks that trying is a problem. We need to stop trying. He thinks we do have this kind of nature we can get in touch with that's inside of us. If we stop trying, we can actually let this thing take over. This is the thing that's guiding Butcher Ding when he lets it take over and he's cutting up the ox. He's suspicious of language and ritual and all these things. But where he's different is he, he also doesn't want to set up any vision of what the perfect society is going to look like. So he's worried that he's worried about fixed ideas, people getting fixed ideas about how to do things. And I think he would say the primitivist vision where we have to go live in villages and it has to look like this and they can't be bigger than this and we have to get rid of literacy is too fixed. So he's really uh, not giving you any story about what society is going to look like. He's giving you guidance for how to live in society as it is skillfully and without harming your nature. And for him, it's about not undoing. So for Lao Tzu, it's about unlearning things and kind of getting rid of the, these things you've been taught. For Zhuangzi, it's about just making your mind receptive, making your mind open. And he thinks if you can do that, the world will take over. The reason we're not away right now is we interpose our own ideas and expectations on the world, and so we can't really see it the way it really is. If we can make our mind empty or tenuous, we can perceive the world the way it really is and let it guide us to do the right thing. And so he has a lot of these skill stories, Butcher Ding, Cutting Up the Ox. He's got a story about this woodcarver who goes out into the, the woods and makes himself empty. He meditates, apparently, for seven days until he forgets everything. He forgets social expectations. He forgets about skill. And he just goes out with a completely empty, open mind into the woods. And the bell stand that he needs to carve just reveals itself in a tree in front of him. And he, he just cuts away the part that doesn't belong. And voila, he's got a bell stand. So this is the, the idea of Zhuangzi is, is Taoist in the sense it's rejecting Confucian culture. But he's not wanting to get rid of the culture itself. He's just trying to get rid of the attitude and allow you to live in that culture skillfully. And it's paralleled with my Michelangelo, how you know he would see the carving. He would see David within a block of marble. Yeah, yeah. He would say, you know, I didn't do anything. I just cut away the part that didn't belong. And I think this is a very common artistic feeling. People have this when they do something well. They have a feeling. Again, this is what Uwe is about, right? A feeling that they didn't do it. It's somehow the muse spoke to them, or um, the performance just took them along. So Zhuangzi's goal is to get us to be living like that all the time. Underpinning all of that thought, there's an idea sort of refined across them, but this idea of like four main virtues, which I'll ask you to explain what that is. But then I really want to talk about how some of those things have started to be sort of demonstrated by by science. Yeah, so a virtue, so um, if you want to talk about this in terms of ethics, the dominant Western models of ethics have been cold cognition ones, system two ones. So deontology, usually associated with Kant. So you, you have certain rules or maxims about how to act. And you, in any given situation, you say, well, you should not lie, you should not steal, and you decide how to act. And if there are two in conflict, you have some kind of ranking in your mind. Utilitarians say, well, how do you decide the right thing to do? You do the calculation. You figure out the benefits, you figure out the costs, you do the math, and then you have your answer about what to do. In both cases, it's a completely rational, abstract process. A computer could do it, right? And there's another model of ethics that actually was around in the West. So people like Aristotle embraced this model, which we now call virtue ethics, which says actually the way to know what the right thing to do is in a situation is to train virtues, train these kind of spontaneous, they're spontaneous, they're self-activating, they don't require a conscious thought. In other words, I would argue virtues are basically way behavior that we think is morally correct. So being a generous person, being a compassionate person. And so the way to actually be good is to develop these virtues. The way to train people to be good is to cultivate them in this kind of embodied way. So to get a new virtue, you have to do training, you have to do behavioral stuff, you have to do rituals, you have to train your imagination in various ways. So virtue ethics is arguing that's what moral behavior is really about, is training these kind of, uh, if we want to put it in hot, cold terms, that you want to develop these new hot behaviors that are morally proper and socially desirable. And so you talk about how some of these virtues are being demonstrated in experiments. Well, yeah, so what, I mean, the, the main thing is just what's being demonstrated is that we're not rational beings. <laughs> and, you know, we're not, in real life, we're not being guided by what Kant or Descartes or Bentham thinks we're being guided by. Um, we're capable of rational thought, but in the real world, most of what we're doing is being guided by hot cognition. So a lot of the, the work that I look at coming out of evolutionary theory and, and cognitive science, behavioral neuroscience, is about, so for instance, 
since Thais uh, draw a lot on Antonio Damasio's work. So he wrote a very famous book, uh, Descartes' Error, which is basically arguing, what I love about Damasio's work is, this is how new data from the sciences can actually impact philosophy. So he studies these patients who have lost the ability to experience emotion. So the part of the brain that allows you to experience emotion has been damaged. What's interesting about these patients is their rationality is perfectly intact. So if you give them a test of how to be a good Kantian, for instance, they pass with flying colors. They're great Kantians. They can reason through dilemmas and make decisions in a very nuanced way. But in real life, they're incapable of making any kind of decision, let alone an ethical decision. And so what I like about this is these patients have every that Kant says a moral agent needs to have, and yet they're demonstrably not moral agents. And we actually know what is missing, what's missing is emotion. And so Damasio is arguing that really rationality in the real world depends heavily on emotions because the world is so, the world so complex, if you had to actually attend to every detail in the world and try to reason through it, you're, you're, our reasoning capacity is very limited. It's kind of choke point. There's no way you could act, you'd be paralyzed, which is what happens to these people. They get, they get behaviorally paralyzed. They just don't know what to do. And so what's happening with people whose emotions are intact is our emotions are constantly guiding our rationality and saying, here are the things that are important to pay attention to, and this is more important than this other thing. And without that, we just aren't functional agents, moral agents in the world. So his work's really suggesting that this, the virtue ethical approach, the idea that proper moral reasoning and proper moral behavior requires a kind of harmony between rationality and emotions and dispositions looks very plausible. listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and this week I'm talking to Edward Slingerland and we're talking about his book Trying Not to Try. And Edward, I said earlier in the interview that we talk about how these ideas are applied to civilization as a whole, how they might have helped civilization get going in the first place to move us from, you know, a sort of hunter-gatherer society onto bigger societies. Yeah, so this is a topic of the second to last chapter. And it's partly an attempt to explain from a modern perspective how we'd understand the connection between Uwe and Duh. So, you know, a person in Uwe has this charismatic power, according to the early Chinese. They have a religious explanation for it. So you're in harmony with heaven, and then heaven gives you this power. But if we don't share that religious worldview, we've got to tell some kind of other story about how the two would go together. I think the way to understand it is that there's a connection between spontaneity, between Uwe, and trustfulness. So the charisma that you have when you're in a way, this power of duh, comes about because people trust you. So if you're a leader, people believe that you're really kind of leading them in the right direction. You know what to do. You're trustworthy. They should follow you. In more mundane situations, if you're a salesman, people will trust you that you have their own best interests at heart. If you're on a date, people will like you more and more likely to want to go on a date with you again. So I think that one way to understand that direction, you know what to do. You're trustworthy. They should follow you. In more mundane situations, situations. If you're a salesman, people will trust you that you have their own best interests at heart. If you're on a date, people will like you more and more likely to want to go on a date with you again. So I think that one way to understand what Duh, this charismatic power is from a naturalistic predict with you again. So I think that one way to understand what duh, this charismatic power is from a naturalistic perspective is it's the attractiveness that someone who is in, in kind of trustworthiness that someone who is spontaneous radiates. And one of the things I look at is a lot of uh, good recent work showing that typically cheating lying, cheating, non-prosocial behaviors, the behavior that harms other people, takes rational thought. 
to lie, you have to consciously exert effort. Um, telling the truth is easy. And so I think what we are doing unconsciously all the time is we're on the lookout for little signs that people kick off when they're thinking too much, when they're actually using their system too more than um, one would expect. And when we see that, we, we don't trust them. We get a little bit suspicious. And the obverse is that when we don't see any signs of overthinking or kind of uh, strategic reasoning, we tend to trust more what the person's saying and doing, and therefore they're more effective with us socially. So I think this is, and the way this relates to this, this question of large-scale societies is there's a big puzzle in evolutionary theory of how human beings manage this transition from hunter-gatherer societies to large-scale agricultural communities. So for most of our evolutionary history, we lived very much like our primate cousins. So we lived in small hunter-gatherer bands. We cooperated with people we either were related to in some way. So a lot of the people in a small-scale society are interacting with your cousins or um, blood relatives of some type, or at least people who you can keep track of. So people you know, at least by reputation, so you have some sense of who they are. And so we understand very well how cooperation works when people are related or can keep track of one another weird about large-scale societies. These pop up relatively recently from an evolutionary perspective. So in the uh, uh, Near East, let's say you know, 6,000 years ago, maybe in, in China, Yangtze, Yellow River Valley, about three, 4,000 years ago. But you get these large-scale societies, and now you have people all the time interacting with strangers. So one-off interactions with strangers that are never going to get repeated again. You're never going to see this person again. You are not related to them biologically in any way. It's a puzzle about why people still cooperate in those situations. So when you're in a strange city, we don't usually reflect upon this, right? But if you're in a strange city and you're lost, you stop and you ask directions, right? From an evolutionary perspective, a bizarre transaction that's happening. So you're trusting this complete stranger who barely speaks your language probably. You're trying to communicate. You trust that they're going to give you good advice. They're not going to mug you. They're not going to steer you deliberately wrongly. There's this kind of baseline of trust that we have in our interactions with others that's puzzling. And so there's two stories about how this happens. One is that the cold cognition story. So we get new institutions. So we get laws and punishments and police force. And, you know, if someone lies deliberately, I don't know, you'd report them to the police or something. So we have this idea that somehow institutions solve this cooperation problem. People are worried about being punished. They want to be rewarded. But the, I think the more likely story and the one that fits with the, the hot story about morality and the, the way story is that it's about trust. So you build these bonds of background trust where you people, at least implicitly, are committed to similar values. And so you've got signals that people are part of your, your new tribe. So we, we expand the biological tribe to include people who aren't related to us genetically. So we have trust networks, and that's what allows large-scale societies to work. But the problem then is you've got the danger of the, this village poser, right, the person who is faking being part of your team but is not really committed. And so I think that's, that really explains this connection between Uwe and uh, we're worried about village honest person or the village poser. We're worried about someone who claims to be serving our interests but actually is only serving their own interests. And so we're always on the lookout for signs that people are faking it, that people are trying to trick us or they're being um, dishonest in some way. This is obviously a time way before anybody came up with the idea of a philosopher when we're talking about the first beginnings of you know settled civilizations. But like taking that forward a bit, once... Chinese philosophers had codified these ideas of Wu Wei and they were all, their work was all about how to achieve that. To what extent did that, going forward, influence how Chinese society developed? So we've compared that mode of thinking to how the ideas of the, you know, the sort of dualism idea was developing in the West. How did that change how a, a large society developed? Yeah, it's debatable the extent to which it did. <laughs> So the, you know, the in early China there is an explicit debate between essentially institutional model people. So we have these legalists who are saying the only way to run a state properly is have punishments and rewards. And the Moists were very much into punishment, reward, cold cognition, institutional approaches. The Confucians are saying it's got to be about virtue and trust and honesty and these these kind of trust ties. The Confucians win in a way. 
So China gets unified in 221 BC on what you could argue are legalist principles. So this ruler, the first emperor of Qin, had very strict uh, rewards and punishments, very uh, well-organized bureaucracy. If you stepped out of line, you were punished. If you did your job, you were rewarded. And that seemed to allow him to gobble up the other states, warring states, and unify China. But not that long after the Qin falls very quickly, the Han Dynasty becomes the first really long-lasting dynasty in China. And at a certain point, they become officially Confucian. So they start espousing these ideas of virtue leadership, and it's about the leader setting the proper model, and then the people view him as a father, and they want to follow him. It's very much the kind of trust, commitment, bigger family type model, Hue model. But in reality, they inherited all these institutions from the Qin dynasty. So all these punishments and rewards and a very efficient bureaucracy. So what China ended up with was an interesting kind of hybrid model, where they had a lot of these uh, very strong institutional forms on the ground. But for big swaths of their history, they were at least officially about this kind of uh, virtue model. And you, you do see this kind of language still today. So the, the idea that uh, in China that rulers should be kind of moral exemplars to the people. And, you know, you don't need rule by law. You don't need human rights. You don't need to have um, people having the ability to sue necessarily. What you want is people unified into a big community where they look up to the rulers and the rulers in turn view them as the way you would view your children. They care for them. They're compassionate. Um, this kind of family model of government, this rhetoric at least is still very much alive in China and it comes directly down from this Confucian model. I'm Lee Rourke. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Final question, and I want to widen that out to the whole world. Really, you mentioned in the in the very first part, Mr. Russell Brand, and you are. I, I read his book Revolution recently, and you're you're featured in it. He speaks to you, and and these ideas crop up in that book quite a bit. So, how do you think the ideas of Uwe and Dirk can be applied on like a wider level, just to make the world a better place? One thing to point out is that this tension, the paradox of Uwe, is something we experience all the time in our lives. So even just bracketing for a moment the issue of how we save the world. <laughs> um, they're important because they seem very abstract, this idea of unifying the realm in early China or move, you know, uh, bringing everyone back to agricultural utopia. We face this tension constantly in our lives. So um, when you have insomnia and you're trying to fall asleep, you, you need to make yourself relax. That's the paradox of the way. You have an interview and you, you are nervous about it and people say to you, well, just be yourself, be relaxed. And you, it's very hard to make yourself be relaxed if you're not feeling relaxed. That's also the paradox of Wu Wei. So these, these ideas about Wu Wei, I think, really can impact the way we live our lives just on an individual level in very important ways. How they relate to larger political issues is a tricky thing. So, you know, the conversations I had with Russell, he was telling me about this revolution he's envisioning. <laughs> uh, we had about an hour and a half long conversation at his place. And at one point I was like, well, who's, you know, who's in charge? Like, who's going to decide? Yeah, because we're not going to have any of this bourgeois kind of human rights and uh, rule by law and stuff. And um, who's going to be? Ch- and basically, he's going to be in charge. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a. His his vision, in some ways, is a very kind of loudsian vision of you've got this new ruler who's going to people don't like it, but we're going to you know impose naturalness on you, and you're going to like it in the end. Just trust us. Um, and and that does make me a little bit nervous. So. In that sense, I guess I'm more of a Zhuangzian in the sense that I'm worried about big narratives about how we're going to reform the world. On the other hand, though, I think in his more recent, I haven't read Revolution yet, but I've read some more recent interviews with him, and he seems to have toned down the um, autocratic revolution story and played up more just what we need to do is start to get people to think about what kind of society they want to live in. Do you want to live in a society where there's this enormous disparity in wealth? Do you want to live in a a society where we're heating up the world and making things very pleasant for people living in British Columbia, but miserable for everyone else in the rest of the world? And if not, how do you change that? And one plausible story about that is you change your dispositions. So you need to actually start retraining your emotions. You need to start uh, retraining your values in important ways. And so I think kind of a, a plausible story about Russell and other people who are activists want to achieve is changing basic, getting us to embrace a new set of values in a sincere way 
um, that would then ideally in an Uwe fashion lead us to start changing our behavior. I can see why these ideas would appeal to Russell. I mean, he is, you know, he's an incredibly charismatic man. He has, he certainly has duh in spades, but I guess uh, time will tell if, um, if he, if he has Uwe or if he's a village poser. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think, I mean, the, this idea about focusing on values is one of the important takeaways is that it really doesn't matter what you what you sincerely embrace, and sincerity is crucial. But if you have it, if you if you can sincerely embrace a new set of values, you'll transmit them to other people in a non-coercive way. And that strikes me as the most kind of comforting model for how we would move forward. That's a great point just to finish then. So I've been talking to Edward Sligerland. We've been talking about his book, Trying Not to Try, and that's out in paperback now from Canongate Books. So Edward, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, some great journalism and more on our relaunched website littleatoms.com Thanks for listening Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market They're your destination for unbeatable savings From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.